but turn with me to Romans chapter 9 as we continue to preach through this wonderful letter of Paul. And as we began chapter 9 a few weeks ago, there was a, a verse of scripture I told you to, to, to keep in mind as we read through these verses because it's very important. And that was Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, which says, <clears throat> For your thoughts, or for my thoughts, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Many times, as we read through the scriptures, we come across <clears throat> passages of scripture that, that don't seem to make sense to us that are hard to understand. And we, we have this tendency to bring God down to where we are and say, well, if it was me, this is what I would do. Or if it was me, I wouldn't have done it like that. And we tend to think that God thinks like we do, that God acts like we do. And we need to remember that he's God. He is sovereign God, which means that God can do what God wants, when God wants, and how God wants and he really doesn't care what we think about it. And so we need to keep in mind what he says. He says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, that specifically applies to the area that we're getting into now. I have been waiting and excited about getting to this. We may stay here for three weeks. I don't know. <laughs> While the theme, the major theme of chapters 9 through 11 in Romans is God dealing with his elect nation, Israel. The underlying theme, especially in chapter 9, is God's sovereignty in doing so. That God can do what God wants. And it may not make sense to us. It may confuse us, but it doesn't mean that, with that, that God is wrong. Now, Israel... As Paul is writing this, remember in chapter 8, he ended chapter 8 with saying, look, there's nothing in all of creation that will ever separate you from the love of God. Okay? God, uh, the gospel has gone out into the world, and for those who believe and those who are saved, they are secure in that for eternity. But the Jewish readers would come back to Paul. Paul anticipates and and and, you know, they're saying, okay, well, look, if this was really true, then we as a nation would all be saved. And so Paul is going to point out here, and I gotta be, I gotta walk a fine line right here, okay? Paul is gonna say, look, just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're an Israelite. Let me tell you something just because you're a church member doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because someone calls themselves a Christian doesn't mean that they actually are. As a matter of fact, I think that word Christian has been so overused in our world today. You realize the Ku Klux Klan called themselves Christians. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they call themselves Christians. But they're not. It is, it, it, there, there is a specific thing that, that identifies us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and allows us to call ourselves Christians. And here in chapter 9, in verses 6 through 13, Paul declares that the unbelief of Israel is consistent with God's promises. You see, what they were saying was, okay, Paul, if all of this was true, if Jesus really was the Messiah, then Israel would be saved. 
And Paul, okay, now I love the way Paul puts this. Paul says, all Israel will be saved. But he don't mean what they mean. And we're going to see as we go through this. Paul says, all Israel, we see God, we see is working out his sovereign uh, promised purpose in history. Look at verse 6. Okay, now let's back up a minute. Let's go back. You know, Paul is talking about how he he grieves over his, the, the, the lostness of his fellow Jews. His heart is sorrowful because they have rejected the one Messiah that, that was theirs. Jesus, when he came, and he says, I would even give up my salvation and spend an eternity in hell if it meant they could be saved. Now, Paul knew he couldn't do that, but he's showing, he's, he's using hyperbole, and he's showing how, how grieving his heart is over those who are lost. In verse 4, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But the nation as a whole had rejected Christ. And so Paul asks in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul asks, has the promise of God failed? Because the nation as a whole had rejected Jesus, did God's promise fail? And Paul says, absolutely not. God never promised that every Ethnic Israelite would be saved. He never promised that. Not every physical child of Abraham will be saved. And the fact that the Jews did not believe in Christ did not and does not contradict God's promises because he never promised they would all be, fa- they would all be saved. Now, that fine line I told you about. God never promised that every Israelite would be saved. But God did promise that all of Israel would be saved. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It does to us, but it's not to God. And here's the thing. What we think about it is irrelevant. What God says about it is what matters. And we'll get to that. And we're going to get more deeper into that as we especially get into chapters 10 and 11. But here we see that in the same way, as I said, uh, you know, not all... Christians are saved. Not all church members are saved. We have this idea that we walk into a church, we walk down an aisle, we shake a preacher's hand, we say a prayer, he he dunks us in the baptismal. We're members of the church, heaven's our next destination. No matter what happens after that. But here's the thing. You can receive the Lord Jesus Christ or say that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible is clear. And this is where Paul is alluding to here, okay? And I'm going to get to that here in just a second. Here's what Paul's saying, but I want to put it in our perspective from our where we are today. If I stand up here and tell you I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe the gospel, the life I live from here on out will bear that out. And if it doesn't, then it's pretty good indication that I'm either deceived or lying. I can't tell you how many times I have met people 
And I have gone to them and I have, I have tried to share the gospel. And they say, oh, hey, preacher, you don't have to tell me. I went to vacation Bible school when I was five years old. And the preacher said, hey, if you want to be saved, raise your hand. And I raised my hand, so I must be saved. And they really believe that. Regardless of the ungodly, sinful life they live after that. And that's where we deceive ourselves. And so this is what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, look, the, these, you know, the Jews in Jesus' day, when they, uh, the religious leaders, when they dealt with him, they were livid over the fact that he was telling them they were wrong and that he was right. But what they missed was the fact that this was God in the flesh looking at them and saying, hey, you got this wrong. <laughs> and they said, no. So in the same way, not all who claim to be Christian are truly saved. What is it that makes one a true Israelite? What is it that makes one a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Believing in the finished work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. Do you rest in that? Do you trust in that? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you call yourself an Israelite. If you were a true Israelite, you would have accepted your Messiah. You would have believed on him. Listen, if you're a true believer in Jesus, if you're a true Christian, you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I never understood or never, not understood, I never realized just how important that right there is. You know that? That we are saved by grace, say it with me, alone. Through faith, alone, through Christ, according to, for what purpose? To the glory of God alone. You see why all that matters? Now, all of that's found right here in this book, by the way. That's not something we made up. This, 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 was, this was what the, you know, the, the Reformation. You see, the Catholics, they believe all that. The Roman Catholic Church believes all that as long as you take the word alone off of it. That's what made the difference. This is what makes a true Israelite. This is what makes a true Christian. One who believes in Christ alone for salvation. Not in our good works. And Paul's going to talk about that later. He's going to say, look, you're, you're complaining about the Gentiles coming into the church. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, do you know why they're coming into the church? Because they believe in Christ alone. You believe that you have to work your way into it. And that's what he's going to tell them. So as we go along in these chapters, we're going to see this. Uh, it, you know, it, it is only a minority of Jews that believe in Jesus. And, but that's not out of step with God's ways. You know, I'm reminded of Elijah. Elijah was uh, Elijah's a fascinating story. He confronts. Jezebel and Ahab. And he calls for a contest on Mount Carmel. And he tells the Israelite people there, he says, now listen. He said, we're going to have a little contest here between me and the prophets of Baal. Now, if you see God at work today, then you worship him. If you see the gods of the Baal Worshippers here did worship. In other words, he's saying to them, make up your mind, get on one side or the other, either worship God or don't. So they have their contest. And of course, you know how 
uh, in the end, God calls down fire from heaven. And then Elijah goes down, he kills all 450 of those prophets. Right? Here's a man of God on fire. He is, he is bold. He is standing up to them. And then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah runs for his life from a woman. Nothing's changed. Has it? <laughs> and he says to God, I'm all that's left. God, what are you going to do? I'm the only one left. And God says, no, I still have 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. God always has a remnant. And this is where Paul is alluding to here. He's saying that there is a remnant here that God is going to call. And, and God is working out his purpose in history. And to underscore this idea, Paul gives us some biblical illustrations of this. Look at chapter, uh, look at verse 7. Through, let's look at seven through nine. <clears throat> and not all children of Abraham, not are all children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, you all know the story. Abraham wants a son. He comes to God and he says, look, I have no heir. And God says, I'll give you an heir. He says, I will. He said, Sarah will bear a son. Now, they were both well past childbearing age. And in that interval time there, they got What's the word I'm looking for? They got, man, the word's right there and I can't say it. <laughs> impatient. That's what I was looking for. They got impatient. So Sarah says, hey, I have a handmaid here named Hagar. Now, let's stop right there. Because this is not where it began. Let's go back several years. God has called Abraham into a land. He said, you come follow me. Abraham drops everything. He goes and follows him. There's a famine in the land. Rather than trust God, Abraham goes down to Egypt. You know, in the Bible, Egypt is always a picture of the world. So Abraham goes down to Egypt. You all know Sarah's my sister. And then he finds out. And so they say, you know what, Abraham, you, you have put me in a bad place. You need to get out. And when he leaves... There's a woman named Hagar that goes with him. So you see, it all started because Abraham, in his unbelief, and trust, not, didn't trust God during this famine. All right, so now, Hagar takes, uh, Abraham takes Hagar. She conceives. She has a son. His name is Ishmael. Now, don't misunderstand something here. Ishmael is just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac will be. Both are his sons. No less, no more. But God said, I want you to go to Hagar and I want you to send her and Isaac, Ishmael away because he's not the one. I know you want him to be your heir. He's the firstborn. He should be the heir. But God said, he's not the one I promised. 
And then a while later, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. God's covenant was established through Isaac, not Ishmael. Turn with me over to Galatians. Let me see here. Galatians chapter, chapter 4. Beginning of verse 21. <clears throat> Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, right there is the difference. Right there is what Paul is alluding to here in Romans. Paul is saying, look, just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham does not make you a true Israelite. Just like being born into a Christian family does not make you a Christian. I have known folks that would tell me, you know what, I've been in church all my life. Since I was born, I've been in the church. I must be saved. And that's just not true. And so Paul is saying here, look, he says, God determined that Abraham's offspring would be traced through Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise. And the elect was the result of the promise of God. Now, here's the first thing we need to see here. Here's Ishmael. Here's Isaac. God chose Isaac. You know why? I don't either. But he did. He did. God chose Isaac. And he said he is the son of promise. Ishmael, Paul said there in Galatians, was a product of the flesh. And so what Paul is saying here is this. Look, God will never accept what we do by, in the flesh. He will never accept our fleshly worship. He will never accept our fleshly works. It is only that which is done in faith in the promise of God that he will accept. That's Isaac. That makes sense? Yes. Ishmael, as I said, was a product of the flesh. In verse 8, Paul says that only the children of the promise are Abraham's offspring. Uh, there in verse 9 is a quotation, from, uh, a loose quotation from Genesis chapter 18, when he says, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's the promise of God. And God did exactly what he promised. Abraham had a son through Sarah, and his name was Isaac. And it reminds us of God's gracious miracle, which enabled Sarah to bear the child of promise. Because remember this now, Abraham and I, uh, Sarah, they were well past childbearing age. But yet she had a child. And I promise you, nobody ever said, went around saying, oh, Abraham, what a man. At that age, having a child, nobody said that. They knew it was impossible. They knew that that child had to come from somewhere other than Abraham. And that child came from God. Came from God. You understand how that works today? How that relates to us, to you and I? 
here we are. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and there are so many, I promise you, who are going to be in heaven. And they're going to be praising God for their salvation. And they're going to say, oh, hey, wait a minute. And they're going to turn to someone else and say, I'm so glad I made the decision to be here. They're going to stop praising God, start praising yourself. If I have a decision to make, which, by the way, I don't. It is God, and we're going to see that here in a minute. So that which of the flesh God will never accept. And we should not miss the application here that salvation is not based on physical birth, but on God's gracious intervention. Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 6, speaking to Nicodemus, he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is is spirit. You know what the flesh does? The flesh brings nothing but death. The spirit brings life. Do you know that to this very day, you know, uh, the Ish- Ishmael, God blessed him materially, physically. He became a great nation. A nation to this very day is a thorn in the side of every nation on earth. Especially the nation of Israel. Listen, that which is of the flesh brings nothing but death. And so Jesus said that which is of the flesh is flesh and that which is of the spirit is spirit. It's also important to keep in mind that God's promise to Abraham was that all the earth would be blessed. And it was through Isaac that ultimately comes Jesus. Jesus. He didn't come from Ishmael. He came through Isaac. You know why? Because Isaac was the son of promise. Now, it's interesting because, you know, the miraculous birth of Isaac, when Abraham and Sarah were well past childbearing age, we look at that and say, only God could have done that. And we look at that manger and we see that young virgin woman there giving birth and we say, only God could have done that. He was a son of promise, just like Isaac was. God's sovereign election had the nations in view when it came to Isaac and Ishmael. But then we have another example. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order... Now, I want you to pay very close attention to these next few words. In order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. Paul again presses home the point that salvation has nothing to do with the status, the works or ethnicity, but rather it comes down to one thing and that is God's grace. And that's it. Let me tell you, you might have heard this before. (laughs) If you hadn't, you'll write this down. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Y'all ever heard that? 
<laughs> Almost every Sunday, right? Listen, in verse 11 and 12, Paul highlights God's sovereign freedom. Salvation is not based on doing good or bad, but it's based on God's electing grace. It is based, Paul said, on the one who calls. Because I want to tell you something. Jacob and Esau, they were both sinners. As a matter of fact, if you read the account in Genesis about Jacob, you will say, wow, what a terrible person. <laughs> he was a deceiver. He was a con man. I mean, he deceived his brother, stole his birthright. He deceived his father, stole the blessing. Had to run for his life. Went to his uncle Laban. You ever heard the story, what goes around comes around? Well, Laban was the answer to that. Because you see, when he got there, Laban had two, two, two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And Jacob fell in love with Rachel. She was the second born. And, and he said, I'll work for you for seven years and you give me Rachel as a wife. And Laban said, you got it. And it says that, that the seven years just flew by for Jacob. And of course, you know, in those days, the bride was heavily veiled and all this. And so the night after his wedding, he wakes up next to his wife named Leah. And he goes to Laban and says, what have you done? You've tricked me. And he said, I didn't trick you. The firstborn always gets married first. Jacob, you should have known this. Work another seven years and you can have Rachel. So he did. But you see... Jacob was not a very good person. He was not. A, and, and the interesting thing is, on his way to his uncle Laban's, he comes to a place called Bethel, where he sees a ladder or a stairway to heaven, the angels of God. And there, Jacob meets God. He says, I will serve you my whole life. But he didn't. He was still the same. The point that Paul's making here is this. The point I'm trying to make is this. It wasn't that God looked and said, you know, Jacob, he's going to be a pretty good guy. I'm going to save him. Esau, not so much. That's not what God did. Paul specifically says here in verse, uh, let me find it here. Lost my place. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Some have this idea that God looks ahead in history. He saw me and said, okay, someday Bobby's going to believe in me, so I'm going to save him. But that's not what that says. You know, if we go back to chapter 8 and verse 29, it says, And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And it's important that we point out that Paul says, whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew. There's a big difference. And so we, we look at this and, and, and Paul is giving an example to the, to, the, to the Jewish readers that are listening to him. He says, God did not look ahead and see that uh, Jacob doing good because he wouldn't do that. So we see that salvation is not based on who you are or what your good works are. Charles Spurgeon, he one time said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born, 
because he sure wouldn't have done it afterwards. Paul is pointing out the sovereignty of God. That God is God. And we say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that God would shave some and not save others. Listen, folks, fair sends all of us to hell. Did you know that? Because fair is not according to what we think is fair. It's according to what God says is fair. And that's what matters here. God chose to set his saving love on Jacob and not Esau. Now, again, Esau, God blessed him. He became a great nation. From him came the Edomites, who, by the way, were the mortal enemies of the descendants of Jacob. But God didn't make him be that way. All of us from our birth are like that. Psalm said, total depravity. There's nothing good. Paul's already said in chapter 7, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells what? No good thing. Nothing. So, you see, neither Jacob or Esau deserved to be saved. It wasn't based on what they deserved. And when he says here, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. That word hated, the focus is not so much on God's emotions, but on God's actions. Again, see, let's not make God like us. When we use the word hate, it's different than how God uses it. We use it based on our emotions. God uses it based on truth. God rejected Esau. Why? I don't know. God chose Jacob. You know why? I still don't know. God chose me. You know why? I don't know. But I'm going to thank him every day for eternity that he did. And I'm going to say <clears throat> that it was in God's good pleasure to do so. Remember that Paul has salvation in mind here when he uses this word election in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that the, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul does here. Here's what Paul does. Remember now, one of, the, one of the problems we have in salvation today, or in churches today, with salvation is this. We have a tendency, and in many cases we're even told this, and I'm going to tell you right now, you're not. It has nothing to do with you. Your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is about the glory of God. That one day I will stand in heaven before the holy, holy, holy God. And the only thing I will do is fall on my face and say thank you. Thank you. For eternity, I will say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Affirming God's sovereign election does not mean that we believe that, that we're human puppets and uh, that we have no personal responsibility. 
Okay? But you have to wait till we get to chapter 10 to talk about that. You see, we do have a part to play. We are, and I'm going to be honest with you, this is a very difficult doctrine to understand. I struggle with that salvation is all of God. Salvation is from God from beginning to end, but yet I do have a responsibility in it. I don't completely understand that. But hopefully by the time we finish this, we will all have a better understanding of what that means. So then the point is clear. God's word, Paul says, has not failed. He's saying to the Jews, just because you rejected him doesn't mean he failed. Listen, we can look in our world today and we see the condition of our world. We see the chaos, the wars, the killings, uh, the, the rampant sin. And people look at us and say, you sure there's a God? And we can say with him like Paul did, there is. And I may not understand what he's doing, and you may not understand what he's doing, but he does, and that's all that matters. God's word has not failed. God's word will never fail. In sovereign freedom, God has always chosen a people for himself. Always. And he continues to work out his sovereign purpose in history. Now listen, folks, I'm going to tell you to me, this is a great source of comfort to me. It's a great source of comfort to know that had God not chosen me, I'd be on my way to hell because I never would have chosen him. A lot of people talk about, and we'll we'll talk more about this later. A lot of people talk about free will. Well, I have a free will. Yes, you do. But your will can only do what is in accordance with your nature. And prior to Christ, do you know what your nature is? You're dead. You would never choose God because you cannot choose God. So the point comes down to this. If God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I look and say, Lord, I look at my life. I see a life of mine that's filled with sin, unbelief. And there are times when I I just want want to look at God and say, I don't understand. Why do you put up with me? I'm serious. You know what God says? He says, don't you worry about it. He said, I've already got it covered. Right? That's why I love that saying that says when God saved me, he already factored in my stupidity. That's a wonderful thing. And Paul here is saying, look, don't you put this on God. Don't say that God has failed. Don't say that God's word has failed. You are the ones, he says, that's failed. Because you failed to believe. So, folks, this morning, let's take comfort in the fact that if you are saved, it's because God set his love upon you. He set his saving grace upon you. He chose you out of this world before the foundation of the world. And he made you alive when you were dead. All because he's God. Let's pray. Father. Lord, as we come this morning, we are so grateful to you, Father. We don't understand completely your sovereign election. Father, it it, it tends to go against everything that we naturally believe and think. 
But Father, help us always to keep in mind that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Father, forgive us any time that we have begin to think that our salvation is about us. Forgive us for every time, Father, that we had try to bring you down to our level. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for showing your love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Father, help us. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day so that we may remember that salvation is about you. May we lift up the Lord Jesus Christ and remember the sacrifice he did, that you have imputed his righteousness to us as he took our sin upon himself. Thank you, Father. But we know we don't deserve this. We deserve hell. So, Lord, may we never cease Father, to thank you and to seek to know you better and better. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.